What is man? Um, By that I mean what defines man or humanity? Uh, Obviously the question has been explored, hasn't it, throughout history, in all realms of thinking, science, art, philosophy, religion, uh, all of trying to explain what they understand humanity to be. Uh, More than ever before in history, I think the appreciation has got to the stage that they understand the, the complexity of man more than ever. And we sometimes take, therefore, a very high view, a very positive view of humanity. Uh, We think of it as sophisticated, as powerful, uh, as responsible. And that kind of big society thing of uh, David Cameron and the Conservative Party is very much uh, taking in that kind of thinking. It's born from that idealistic understanding of man. It assumes, doesn't it, by nature that we have evolved like many other things. Therefore, we are more selfless more giving than we ever have been before in history. So as the world progresses in its understanding of technology, economics, science, whatever it may be, as it appreciates more the diversity in this world of cultures, of uh, languages, the assumption is made that we too have evolved and will appreciate more and understand more. And there have been such moments in history where that seems to have been the case. So think of Pax Romana, which was essentially the Latin word for Roman peace. That was a period of history that began with Caesar Augustus and lasted for about 200 years, ending in 250 AD, of which there seemed to be an an understood peace in the Roman Empire. There wasn't wasn't any wars. There weren't any wars at all. And it was understood at that point, and philosophers wrote about it, that man had evolved. They'd appreciated past brutality in war but had now found sustained peace through their intellects, through their appreciation. There's been a Pax Britannica, it was named after that, of you know, peace in England or, or in Britain in the 19th century. And some believe, people actually believed in that time that they'd arrived in a kind of state of nirvana. And, and poets such as Tennyson and others sang, about the, sang songs about the Parliament of Men, the Federation of the World. The human race, they thought, is, had grown up and was going to solve all our problems. There would be no more wars. And it was, uh, they sang, perfect peace, rest and calm resides here. So we've had Pax Romana, Pax Britannica, there was a Pax Hispanica in Spain, and Pax Ottomana as well, the Ottoman Empire. But they were all just moments, tiny moments in history. And the reality is that man has continually disappointed man because we fail to live up to our own expectations. And humanity itself, we've trusted in things like politics and in education and cultural appreciation. And all of those things are really good things, aren't they? Uh, But they have promised much, but over time they've, well, delivered very little. For example, after the Crimean Wars, politicians in our country dared to say this. Well, they were very confident that war would never, ever happen again. And they said, war is due to ignorance. But now we are educated. War, they said, is due to the fact that people don't travel. And they don't know one another, so they fight. But now we are able to travel, they said. And we've got the steam engine, they claimed very boldly. And we can travel a mix, and we are going to banish war. But then the World War I came. 
Oh, but humanity, man said, oh, we'll sort things out. Uh, we're educated. We've evolved to a certain state where we can appreciate one another and we'll, we'll form the League of Nations. That'll be fine. But then World War II came. And they said, well, that's okay. We've learned from that. We've, we've moved on. And, and so we'll, we'll form the United Nations. That'll sort everything out. And then the Cold War began and so on and so on and so on. What is man? The problem is, if man seeks to answer that question in and of itself, it will either view itself so highly and so evolved that it will just disappoint itself, or it will go to its lowest common denominator, which is what we see is all too common today. And in that scenario, the tabloid newspaper, the gutter press, becomes if you like, the moral compass of a culture Essentially, what shocks and sells defines what man deems to be right and acceptable. So clearly, Wayne Rooney, bless him, overstepped the mark last week as he swore into a camera after scoring a goal. But probably every other footballer on that pitch during that match had done exactly the same thing. But Rooney is banned and, and, and the rest walk free and continue to do exactly the same. But the tabloid became the judge and the arbiter. They, they sway the public, and public opinion then manipulates an FA committee. What is man? You see, what you have is this kind of utopian, idealistic view, um, or a popular, relativist view, defined according to what the masses think at any particular time. And it's two ways according to how man looks at man. One is a very modernistic viewpoint, and one is a, very, a second kind of relativistic and post modern viewpoint that continually changes. What is man then? Well, I'm sure, if you, like me, you get to this stage and you think, I find myself quite disappointed in what man understands of man. Which is why I think what we're going to do today is a bit of a shot to nothing. And by that I mean, what we're going to do is we're going to see what God thinks of man, what God understands man to be like, and that is what's spelled out for us here in Psalm 8. Last week we saw in Psalm 2 something of the nature of man and his innate desire to stand against God. Boil it down. and what, It's what theologians call human depravity. That's what you see in Psalm 2. That undercurrent of rebellion against God that we see in all of our lives to differing degrees. Uh, we saw that God can't ignore that rebellion, so he establishes a king, he anoints a king on the throne that will come and crush that rebellion in judgment. But there was also good news, absolutely amazing news, wasn't there? Because the king who will one day come and judge was willing to be crushed on a cross for our sin in our place. God's king Jesus therefore becomes, as the last verse of Psalm 2 says, our refuge. And there's a choice at the end of Psalm 2. He, he can be a shelter in him and you will not face his, ju- his just judgment or you're on your own and you face that inevitable judgment, that frightening, crushing judgment that he will one day bring. Now Psalm 2 showed humanity, I suppose, at its weakest, uh, most rebellious. And the following Psalm, Psalm 3 to 7, if you like, plot a path Uh, for the reader, through very, very dark valleys uh, of crying out to God. They're essentially laments, as the Bible calls them. Uh, Pleading with God for deliverance. And Psalm 8, when we get to it here, 
I mean, do read uh, Psalm 1 to 7 if you can. I mean, that will take you 10, 15 minutes max. But you'll be pretty miserable by the time you get to the end of it. Psalm 8 is the first glimmer of joyful praise in the whole of the Psalter, the whole group of Psalms. But its purpose is to answer this one question. What is man? See, the psalmist is essentially saying, up to this point, I feel rubbish. I I feel weak. I've lamented over five psalms. I've cried out to God. Now, God, please help me understand what I am. What I am as man, humanity. But it's really interesting because the reference point to answering that question is not man himself, as we see around us and what our culture does all too often. The reference point is God. God is the subject at the beginning of the psalm. You see, if we want to understand what is man, if we, uh, we need to understand first who God is and how he's established relationship with man. Only then can we begin to answer this vital question for all of us, what is man? So firstly we see uh, that little kind of introductory point, the Lord is to be praised. You see, the focus begins right there with the Lord. And the psalm actually begins in verse 0, hence why I asked Gordon to read it. It's not verse 0 there, but it's kind of an introductory instruction or heading for the director of music, according to Gittith, or however you pronounce that, a psalm of David. It's scripture. It's not actually just a, um, a heading placed in by the translators, as in many other places in, the, in our New International Versions. But what it shows us, it shows us that it's important to remember that what we're reading here is a song. Hence that instruction to the, the, the Gitter thing, according to Gitter, is either the tune or the instrument. People argue about which one it is. But the musical instruction and the information about the author is a helpful reminder that this is actually to be sung, though we have no music to accompany it anymore. Psalm 8 was the song of God's people. And they would sing it together as they gathered. They have it on their iPods, first century equivalent, whatever. The point is, biblical songs are written to be remembered. That's the beauty and the power of a song. And therefore, the language is colourful. The, the images are vivid. And you see that in verse 1, where the psalm, I suppose, has its content beginning uh, there. And we see the psalm begins as it, as it ends. You see verse 1, halfway through there. And verse 9 are the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it begins and ends with the same way. It's praise, isn't it, to God. The covenant, Lord. You see the Lord in the capitals there. That means his personal name that God gave to his people. Um, that is of Yahweh in the Hebrew. So literally it sings, Yahweh, my Lord, how majestic is your name. And that wonderful gift of the personal revelation, a name to God's people Israel, uh, that meant that God is basically saying, let me be known to you. And therefore, I am now accessible to you, you undeserving people. And that's the same for you and me too. In the previous dark chapters, chapters 3 to 7, God is somewhat hidden to the psalmist. But now we get to chapter 8 and there's this glimmer of light as he majestically reveals himself in his creation. His name is known, that is his 
power is known and it is to be praised, which is what the psalmist is doing. But we see why he is doing that in the following verses. For we see the Lord is the powerful protector. So to our first main point, the Lord is a powerful protector. You see, if we're to know who man really is, the Bible firstly says, come on guys, have a look who God is and be in awe of him. Then begin to examine through that understanding of who God is and then begin to have a look who you think man is. What it does, it just brings perspective. The psalm declares at the outset the Lord and his name is majestic in all the earth. And now he t- stretches it a bit further. Have you seen that? Halfway through verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. See, not only does the glory and the majesty and the name of God permeate the whole earth, now we see it's the heavens too. At the vast scale of this is, I suppose for us as humanity, ever increasing as we scientifically work out how to get more and more powerful telescopes. We can see the heavens, the, the universe as we know it, is forever expanding as we put a new telescope, I think is one's going up in Cheshire soon, which is going to out, sort of do the, uh, the Hubble telescope. But also, just so you get the bigness of this, I looked up on probably Wikipedia or something like that, but here we go. You know, the, our solar system, called the Milky Way, as we know it, is vast, we are one star of what, are, what they say, reckon is about 100 billion. Okay? We're part of a cluster of galaxies, okay? 30 galaxies, all of similar size. Philip Sumner, if you nod here, I'll feel much better about myself because you'll know much more than I will. But, <clears throat> but in the known universe, so the known universe, however our technology has taken us so far, there are an estimated 50 billion galaxies, each with roughly 100 billion stars. Mathematicians, I think that's about 5 times 10 to the power of 21. Please nod for me. That would make me feel so much better. Anyway, it is. So what I'm saying is, do you see the absolute magnitude of verse 1? And God's glory is above, over and beyond all of it. The Bible tells us that God spoke and that, all of it, was created. Which certainly, I I mean, as scientists here, you will know, and if you're a Christian, that doesn't contradict science, although that's a whole new sermon together. It's simply, what science is doing is, is more and more accurately describing all of God's vast creation over time. So the Bible shows us the Lord is the powerful creator, but also it shows us he's the loving protector. Look at verse 2. From the lips of children and infants... You have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. See, we see here that God has the power to bring the weakest and the most dependent in his creation to a point where they can even silence the enemies of God. So you see, God can be praised through the weakest in his creation and they can also be empowered to protect the people of God from their enemies. Now, one of the greatest examples of this Yes, a little bit older than the weakest, but David is the shepherd boy taking on the great Philistine giant Goliath. The Lord, you see, is majestic in all the earth, even in the most small and fragile elements of his world. He is powerful to protect. Now, you can imagine, as David wrote this psalm, him recalling those times back when he was a shepherd boy, as he lay in the field at night, looking up and watching the stars, 
You can imagine at that, he's, he's thinking about all that he's observed in the majesty of God's creation. And I want you to think, with all of that bigness of God that we've uh, just examined, um, I, though they are huge concepts that we're trying to get into our tiny minds, uh, I want you to go for a moment with that. And now consider the question, what is man with that in your mind? And I think what we'll see in the following verses, yes, it's a consideration of that question, what is man? But one that has its anchor firmly established in that vastness of God. So let's go on, verse 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So to our second point, the Lord makes man look frail by comparison. I think verse 3 offers a a perspective. The consideration of God and his work and his creation is very humbling, to say the least. It's like a child building a a little sandcastle on a beach and comparing it to the, the architectural massiveness of the gherkin or, you know, the new Olympic Stadium down in Stratford. The comparison is embarrassing, isn't it? You've got this tiny little sandcastle and it's, it's frail and it's weak and it's so small and it's pathetic and it's stood next to this beautiful, mighty, strong structure. Well, so too the Lord makes man look so frail by comparison. And as David looks up to the night sky and sees the bright moon and the dazzling stars, I guess he's driven um, by this overwhelming experience of viewing the night sky, not polluted by light pollution like we have here, you know, clear, dazzling, bright night sky. He's driven to acknowledge what man spends much of their time denying in the day. That is that God is king and huge and powerful. In contrast to to that vast eternal power of God displayed in the night sky, man is just weak and frail. We just last a few years, don't we? And then we're gone. Two generations down the line and our great-grandchildren will even struggle to know our first names. Do you actually know the name of your great-grandparent? Probably not. What is man? Well, not much in comparison to God. And the parallel term son of man there in the verse makes the same point. that The Hebrew word is ben Adam. And uh, it's, it's pointing out a similar kind of uh, thing. That is, it's just pointing to frailty and to weakness and to a finite time. Now you see, Psalm 8 is not about divine muscles being flexed in the night sky. God's creative power for all to see. It's not about God rubbing our noses in the dirt and saying, you're nothing, you human beings, or anything like that. It's much more about divine grace and power given to us through God in his kindness. And we see that so beautifully in verse 4. So, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. 
Despite this seemingly eternal chasm that separates God's awesome power and man's frailty and finite uh, existence, God is still mindful of you and me. In all those galaxies that he's created by speaking, in all those stars, God in his love has a will and a purpose for the speck that is you and me in his creation. I mean, the Queen, monarch of our country, I, I suppose ruler in some ways, not, you know, democracy, you know better than me, that's fine. But, um, you know, in some ways we're, we're under her rule, aren't we? But so often, how many of her subjects go completely unnoticed, whether in pain or in joy? So many of us just go unnoticed by her, our ruler. How amazing would it be if someone as powerful as the Queen knew who we were, that they were mindful of us, meaning that they remembered us in their thoughts. But God's love, you see, goes so much further. Have you seen it? He also cares. So as he remembers us, he literally, that care word there in the Hebrew, is a, is a seeking out, it's a longing for, it's a I want you, I care for you type of love. And that's for you and me. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine tells a story when he was a, an undergraduate student. He had to meet a, an elderly theologian. It, wasn't, well, it was kind of elderly at the time. You might have known him, you might have read his book, or it's probably on your shelf, Knowing God by Jim Packer. Do you know Jim Packer? And um, he had to meet, my friend had to meet Jim Packer at a station and, uh, where he, was, and he had to accompany him to a meeting where Jim Packer was speaking. It was raining badly. My friend bought this huge kind of golfing umbrella to accompany Jim Packer to this meeting. And on parting, Jim Packer, in his quirky way, um, one of the most brilliant theologians of our time, he turned to my friend and he said this, from this day on, Mark, you shall be known to me as Umbrella Man. And he turned and he walked into the meeting. I mean, it's quirky theologians, as you can imagine. Now, about ten years later, when Mark was studying up at Cornhill, um, which is a kind of pre-theological college, Bible training um, place, brilliant place up, up the road. And my friend was at this conference, and Jim Packer was speaking, and he was surrounded by this little group of friends, and they were all saying, wouldn't it be great if you just had, had some time with Jim Packer to just ask a few questions? And, you know, if Jim Packer was to say, yeah, I know him, he's great, you know, be one of your friends, and so on. Jim Packer then turned up at the group and tapped my friend on the shoulder and he said, Hello, Umbrella Man. (laughs) Ten years later, would you like some cake and like a chat? It'd be good to see how you are. It's amazing, isn't it? Such a powerful, knowledgeable, esteemed man. Well, that is nothing in comparison to verse 4. Look at it. What is man that God is mindful of him? He remembers him. A son of a man that God cares for him. Man is so frail in comparison to the creator God. But man is supremely blessed to know God. uh, That he remembers and cares and bestows honour. And what we'll see in these last verses, he also bestows huge purpose in man as well. So let's just go on in verse 5 to 8. Uh, Let's read. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. 
You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds, the beasts of the fields, even the rats, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. So we get to point three there. The Lord has given man great power, but and also great responsibility. God has made us, we're going to go through each of those little clauses very, very quickly, but let's just run with them. God has made us, we know Genesis 1, 26, 27, that that is in his image. Uh, a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's a position of clearly great honour, the highest earthly place. Being crowned with glory and honour is to know and share in the very essence of God himself. Oh, man may appear weak and insignificant, but we have been bestowed on us with this great honour, such power, but also such responsibility as well. Um, it's a responsibility that was established back in creation and given to us that we might rule, have dominion over the creation that we know. I don't know if you've been watching it on TV. It's now finished. It's been a great BBC natural history series called The Human Planet. I don't know if you've seen it. We've been watching it, recording it on a Thursday night and watching it as a family on, on Fridays as well. And it's been breathtaking to see um, how humanity has adapted and survived in the most extraordinary circumstances around our world. But what was obvious beyond anything else is that man very clearly rules in this earth, on this planet. Humanity is so clearly the pinnacle of this creation. Whatever the premise of the BBC Natural History Department is, um, they clearly understand that humanity is at the pinnacle of, the God's cre- of, of this world. God's creation. Now, yes, of course, we may share 90%, 99% of the chromosomes of a chimpanzee, but it is clear that the 1% makes quite a big difference, doesn't it? We are up there as the pinnacle of this creation. And as man, we, we have rule or dominion over God's creation. Genesis 1, 26, 27. That is where we are to have that rule, dominion. But the clear implication is that we're not to have domination over it. We're not to dominate this world. And therefore, God's people, I think, from what we see in these verses here, we should be at the forefront of environmental concern. We shouldn't allow so many wild animals to become extinct due to man's domination of this world and their um, habitat. Our rule over creation is given, but it's not an autocratic authority. Rather, it's to be exercised as God exercises his rule over us, being mindful and caring. So we see from that, that as our point, the Lord has given man great power and responsibility in these verses, in verse 5 to 8. But not only in the natural world, verse 6 seems to point us to, the, to man's rule over man in governments and justice systems as well. But of course that power is limited because it derives from God and all governments and rulers are ultimately responsible to him. Of course, it might not seem that way. You look at Gaddafi and Libya at the moment and so on. Many other places around that area. Uh, but we must understand from Psalm 2 that all of those men, one day, will face that crushing judgment if they don't take refuge in Christ. They, they will all have to give an account. So what is man? The first question that we come before that should always be, therefore, what is God? Who is God? 
He is the powerful creator and protector of his chosen people. So what is man after that? In comparison, very, very little. And in Psalm 2 we saw human depravity. But I think what we're seeing in these end verses of Psalm 8 is we're seeing human dignity that finds its root in God. A God who has lovingly given us rule in his creation for his glory alone. It is a huge blessing, verses 5 to 8. It is a huge gift, but it is a massive responsibility. Of course, there is so much more I'd love to have said about this psalm. I'd love to have had another week, because I think what we've done is we've understood this psalm as we've looked back at creation, but there is another way that we need to look at it. And I'm going to very briefly take us there now. Because we need to understand this psalm as we look also forward to Jesus. Because Psalm 8 is very, very regularly quoted by the apostles in the New Testament, and most famously in Hebrews 2. I wonder if you can very quickly turn there, Hebrews 2. Someone shout out a number. One two o one Hebrews 2. I'm going to read verses 5 through to 9. Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, like the author doesn't know, Psalm 2. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is, is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned uh, with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There are numerous places where this is quoted, but uh, you know, we see from these verses that it is in Jesus, in him taking on human flesh, becoming man, that we finally and that we fully understand the dignity that we have as humanity before God. We are not animals. Rather, we are made in the image of God, man and woman. But we do not rule this creation as God has ordained, as we ought to. We dominate it in so many different ways, both personally, amongst men, and in nature as well. So what we see from Hebrews 2 is that Jesus has come as the preeminent man, the perfect man in human, perfect God in human flesh, to recapture this world, and to rebuild a new world, where every knee will bow before him. What is man? Well, God creates and we're made in his image because he is mindful of us and he cares for us. And he has given responsibility to us, but we fail to live up to it. And so he sends Jesus, the perfect man, to do that which we could not do. And to redeem the world, which as we see in Hebrews 2 at the end there, and he achieves through that perfect life, that swap on the cross, that substitutionary death, and that victorious raising to new life. So what is man? The answer is you look to Jesus. So tomorrow when you're wondering how you should react to the annoying boss, 
What is man in a situation like that? How should humanity appropriately respond to the absolutely tyrannical boss that you work for? Well, if you looked at the tabloids, you'd probably want to spit on them or have a bit of office back chatter, wouldn't you? Undermine their authority. Oh, you know, if you look at history, you'll probably want to stiff up a lip, respond appropriately and be as nice and as pleasant as possible, but you'd boil up in your heart at some points and lash out, I guess, with anger. Oh, so what if you're wondering what is man in such a difficult situation? What do you do? You look to Jesus. When you think about relationships, what, what to do, who to date, how to respond to people in the opposite sex, what do you do? You look to Jesus, the perfect man. That's why we want all so often to, to just be our heads in the Gospels, where you see the man, the perfectly balanced human person, made in the image of God, and his name is Jesus. I hope you know him really well. Because Jesus is the, he's a strong man's man, isn't he? But he's also the gentle, loving man, who honoured and respected women and cared for children and the elderly. What is man? If you, if you look to man outside here somewhere to find the answer, then... I want to say to you, good luck, because you'll be very disappointed in time. Rather look to Jesus, the preeminent man, and trust in the man who has exercised his responsibility as man perfectly. Jesus is the only man where there is no imbalance between his words and his actions. He doesn't do more than he says or say more than he does. Jesus is the man who is at home with Large crowds is equally with just a one-on-one situation. He dines with the rich and spends time with the poor. He speaks to the lowly of society, we see the prostitutes and the tax collectors, as much as he is uh, comfortable with the, uh, the kind of religious elite of the time. Jesus is the, the man who's happy in prayer and quiet and solitude, but he's never afraid to take action, even if it means it's going to take some flack for it. He is the all-powerful one who demonstrates it again and again. First eight chapters of Mark, you know it well, you've been studying it. But he exercises power how? By serving us and by dying on a cross as the perfect son of man in our place for our sin. Jesus is a man of joy and a man of sorrows as he weeps in the garden. See, what we see in the Gospels, it's just a little picture there, is Jesus the perfectly balanced, normal heavenly human being that we have failed to be. What is man? The answer simply is Jesus. And we would do well to follow him as we exercise the rule and authority that we've been given in this world, whether at work or at home, in relationships, wherever it is. And if we follow Jesus, if we trust in his perfect life as man, then like the last verse of Psalm 8, we will want to cry out with a loud voice in praise to God because in Jesus we are safe for eternity for he is our refuge from that just judgment we learnt of last week. So I hope in your heart and mind you are crying out to the Lord, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Now.